Um, so it's really my pleasure to introduce to everyone today, today's speaker. So today we have Dr. Daryl Abrams here talking to us. Um, so Dr. Abrams has done the majority of his training in New York at Columbia um, and is now uh, an associate professor of medicine at New York Presbyterian Columbia University. Um, he's also the associate medical director and the director of the medical ECMO program in the Center for Acute Respiratory Failure at Columbia. Um, he recently published a paper in the Blue Journal, which has really sparked my interest in sort of the role of ECMO in respiratory pandemics. And I'm very happy to have Dr. Abrams here today kind of talking to us about this. Um, and he let me know in advance that if anyone has any questions during the presentation, that he would be happy for you to either put them in the chat, which I'm happy to monitor, or for you to unmute yourself and ask them. So Dr. Abrams, thank you so much for joining us. I'm really happy to have you here. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's really a pleasure to speak to what I know to be an excellent ECMO uh, center. Um, so hopefully we can all uh, learn something from this talk. And uh, by all means, if you have any questions, please feel free to chime in. Um, hopefully there'll be some time at the end. As always, I have no disclosures, but I'm open to any, uh, any offers. Um, so I want to give us a little bit of a historical perspective because we're talking about ECMO for respiratory pandemics. And um, I'm not sure if you've heard of COVID, but it's something that's recently uh, swept through us for a few years. Um, but it's not the first respiratory pandemic, obviously, and also not the first one where ECMO may have played uh, or could have played some role. Um, so this is actually a, a timeline. Interesting enough, uh, the article that she referenced, this was a draft figure we were going to include, and it got scrapped. So this is an Abrams original. Um, but basically, this kind of gives you a, a bit of a timeline of just where we've been with pandemics and major ECMO trials um, since the early 2000s. So for those who don't remember SARS-CoV-1, and everyone obviously refers to the current one now, um, that was an outbreak that you know, started um, in East Asia, ended up in Toronto. There was a little bit of a spread. It was a little bit early at that time uh, in terms of ECMO usage. It was only early at major centers and very rarely used. So there wasn't really much of an, a role for ECMO there. But 2009 was a bit of a banner year for ECMO in a couple ways. One, there was the CSER trial. Um, and also it happened to coincide with, although really coincidental, since CSER took several years to complete, the H1N1 pandemic. So to just refresh our memories about CSER, I'm sure many of you know, um, it was a trial out of the UK. It was run or sponsored by the National Health Service. It was a very pragmatic trial. So it, um, you know, to some, this answered the question of ECMO for ARDS. And for many others, it was really just a bit of a teaser and had a lot of methodological, methodological issues. Um, but it was a, a randomized controlled trial. It was 180 adults with severe, potentially reversible respiratory failure. Not all ARDS necessarily, although certainly maybe by definition could have met criteria. In fact, there was some tuberculosis in there. There was PE in there, a couple other forms of respiratory failure. Um, and the, the, the punchline is that six months, the rate of death or severe disability was way lower in the ECMO we'll call it ECMO or ECMO-referred arm versus usual care. And this was the biggest criticism of the trial is that uh, patients were randomized to referral to an ECMO-capable center, which also uh, prescribed optimal standard of care management for whom only three quarters of the patients, once they were optimized, actually needed ECMO. And for those that were in the usual care arm, which is, since it's pragmatic, it was not really forced that they had to adhere to optimal standard of care management, only 70% would, would have been considered having received low tidal volume ventilation, which had been around at that point for several years and was certainly the standard of care. Um, it also highlighted a couple of other issues with transport of patients for consideration of ECMO and that several patients either died waiting or died in transport to get to the ECMO-capable center. So seeing as there certainly was not a uniform, you know, 100% received ECMO in the ECMO referral arm and everyone in the usual care received, you know, certainly did not receive optimal care, most people take away from this, this is not an ECMO trial per se. It, it makes us, you know, 
it raises some, some interesting uh, hypotheses, and we hope that maybe this leads us towards a, an ECMO-positive trauma future, which ultimately we have, or we have an ECMO trial, I'll say. Um, but it did not really definitively answer the question. But it happened to coincide with the H1N1 pandemic at the same time. And so there was data coming out saying, hey, ECMO works in these really sick, AR, seemingly works in these really sick ARDS patients. And so they also, you know, piqued a lot of people's interest in using it for H1N1. A lot of young, otherwise previously healthy patients now severe, have severe ARDS from uh, H1N1 uh, influenza A. Um, and there was some conflicting data that comes out of that. So just two of the, the salient um, studies to highlight, there was one also coincidentally out of the UK where it appeared that ECMO-referred patients versus those who were not referred for ECMO had a significant survival benefit from receiving referral for ECMO, um, but not necessarily all receiving ECMO, same kind of problem. And then they tried to tease it out a little bit in France with, by, by pairs matching those who received ECMO and those who did not. And that actually had the opposite direction of point estimate. The odds ratio was against ECMO, but there was a huge caveat that many of the sicker patients who actually seemed to have the lowest mortality were not able to be matched against those that did not receive ECMO. So no randomized controlled data in the time of H1N1, only the CSER data that we have and some observational data to try and tease that out. But certainly by center volume, by case volume through ELSO as one example, started really shooting up. Now that we started to have more data, maybe in support of this novel, relatively novel therapy with more modern technology than had previously existed. And I'm skipping over the old randomized controlled data um, you know, the, the 1979 and 1994, which was a little bit of not quite ECMO data, but ECOR data, um, which was really very sophisticated technology at the time, but certainly not where we are now. And so a lot of um, issues with those trials in, in very early times. Um, a brief mention on that timeline of MERS-CoV, because it was a maybe not quite an epidemic even, it was just, you know, localized. There were not a ton of cases, but, you know, certainly in the Middle East, um, it was a, a coronavirus uh, as an etiology, and there was some data that it, should this become bigger, maybe ECMO has a role, and they tried to match patients with and without receiving ECMO for MERS-CoV. There seemed to be a benefit um, this, you know, with evenly uh, distributed and kind of well-balanced baseline uh, demographics, but you know, something like survival of 60% for those that received ECMO versus or a mortality of 60% versus 100% mortality for those that did not receive ECMO. But these are very, you know, selected patients and, and very small numbers compared to some of these other um, pandemics. So now we get to SARS-CoV-2, COVID-associated ARDS. And this is where we really have now um, the most modern technology. Um, and the question becomes, first, are we talking about the same form of ARDS? Because we're going to talk about a little bit of the OLEA data in a little bit. Um, that probably gives us the strongest data for ECMO for ARDS. And the question quickly arose, is COVID the same? Or does SARS-CoV-2 associated ARDS behave the same as regular ARDS? Some big names in the field, including Luciano Gattinoni, say, no, it's a different form of, of ARDS. Uh, while it meets the definition from a syndrome standpoint, it behaves differently. There's more dead space. There appears to be more thromboembolic phenomena or, or microvascular disease. It, they're not behaving the same way on small numbers on initial, his initial experience. And simultaneously, some people that you may recognize, some people I work with, um, say, we don't have enough data yet. This is very early in the pandemic. For all intents and purposes, it seems to be behaving the same way. More data comes out that, by and large, it fits the definition of ARDS, certainly, and seems to more or less behave like non-COVID ARDS. So let's not start going down some road where, where strategies that are not proven and hypothetical for a maybe new disease 
versus the ones that are tried and true that we've used for many years now that seem to have a benefit in other forms of ARDS. So if we take for granted, and we can discuss, certainly debate this later, but if we take for granted that COVID ARDS is ARDS by any other uh, name, is ECMO appropriate? Should it work? All right, so we only had the CSER data up to a point, but now um, we have a little bit more. And, and the rationale behind it, why should we necessarily expect um, that ECMO is going to actually improve morbidity mortality in ARDS? So before we even launch into COVID, do we have enough data to say why mechanistically we think ECMO may help? There's a lot of ways ECMO can help. It can salvage someone from refractory hypoxemia. It can manage refractory hypercapnia and respiratory acidosis. It may have some impact on diaphragm function and myotrauma, but probably the one that's, that's got the most um, robust preclinical and, and mechanistic data behind it is this idea that ECMO can facilitate a more lung protective ventilator strategy that, that allows you to reduce the injurious forces of the ventilator um, that we'd otherwise have to be susceptible to by managing conventional ARDS without it by reducing volumes and pressures well below the current standard of care, minimizing lung stress, minimizing strain, minimizing all the factors that may contribute to ventilator-induced lung injury. So that's what, what many of us believe is probably the strongest argument for why ECMO may work, and that most people don't die from refractory hypoxemia, but they probably die from multi-organ failure as a consequence of excessive ventilator-induced lung injury. So, um, that leads us, uh, before we go into the COVID data, to really just tease out a little bit more, what is the data we have for ECMO and ARDS to therefore use that as a rationale for why we might want to invoke it in a respiratory pandemic such as COVID. So I'm sure essentially here is very familiar with the OLEA trial, um, ECMO for severe ARDS, led by Len Combs and, and with uh, my boss, Dan Brody, a senior author. Um, and the criteria to enter this trial, this randomized controlled trial for patients with meeting one of these three severity criteria with ARDS. So they had to have either a P to F ratio less than 50 for more than three hours, very small numbers enrolled in that. You can imagine it's a little hard to sit on someone for with a P to F of, of 40 for, for four hours before enrollment, P to F less than 80 for more than six hours. That was far and away the most common uh, criteria met for those enrolled in the trial. Or pHs of less than 725, basically a, a severe enough respiratory acidosis. We're not talking just metabolic here for more than six hours. And this really reflects more of a dead space phenomena that they have a lot of alveolar dead space or that they have very severe respiratory compliance because if they achieve those, those parameters of respiratory acidosis while trying to keep your plateau pressures under 32, you'd meet criteria. Or if you met those criteria and your plateau pressure was under 32, um, it may just reflect a lot of dead space. So a bit controversial as a criterion when the trial was being designed, we're not trying to enroll COPD, we're not enrolling asthma, but arguably patients with a severe form of ARDS that's not manifested only by hypoxemia. Um, and uh, I could, you know, if we had three hours, we could talk about Eolia for the rest of the afternoon, but um, we can certainly leave some questions for that afterwards. But those are the criteria for enrollment. And then here's the punchline, ECMO arm, of which almost everyone received ECMO, 35% mortality, control arm with very high adherence to optimal standard of care, 46% did not meet traditional statistical significance based on a power calculation that estimated it was gonna be a 20% absolute risk reduction, did not achieve that. And you have to imagine in, uh, performing an ECMO trial where you can randomize to control in ECMO centers because you have to be capable of performing ECMO if you're assigned to the ECMO arm, it's gonna be hard for ECMO centers to swallow unless there's an opportunity for crossover because if they get assigned to control, 
I, I don't think those, those centers are going to be happy letting those patients die if they're dying without at least a chance at ECMO. So there was a crossover option. About uh, 35 patients, 28% actually did cross over. They had the highest mortality. And they had to have criteria of stats of less than 80% for more than six hours, despite every rescue maneuver basically available. Um, those were uh, uh, assessed as intention to treat, so they were in the control arm. If you remove them out, the baseline mortality of that control arm is still 41%, was still higher than the, than the ECMO uh, arm's mortality. And you have to figure that at least some of them would have died if not for the use of ECMO. So their mortality could have been even higher had they not had the option for crossover. So on the surface, a clinically meaningful difference, 11%, but not statistically significantly different. But then there were some subsequent analyses, that, uh, uh, most prominently a postdoc Bayesian analysis led by Ewan Gallagher. And what he looked at was any number of ways you have prior beliefs or prior data, including the Caesar data, which is really the strongest data we had prior to this, um, that whether ECMO works or not, and you could be strongly enthusiastic, you could be strongly skeptical, and you set your, your, your anticipated relative risks accordingly, then you input the Eolia data, and you see what you get out afterwards. And basically, based on any given prior, which you can always redesign however you want, the posterior probability of some mortality benefit was present across the board. How much of a benefit, 2%, 4%, 10%, is what varied based on your priors, and, and in particular, your prior beliefs. So even the most skeptical, if you, if you assume there's no difference between ECMO or not, it would move the needle towards ECMO based on the OLEA data, but maybe not enough to sway you that ECMO is better if the trade-off is morbidity that you might not find acceptable. But it certainly seems to suggest the benefit of, you know, at least there being something of, to a high probability, but the magnitude depends on who you are and, and what you believe or what data you use going into it. Um, there were other subsequent analyses, including meta, uh, you know, this, um, this uh, meta-analysis out of Toronto, which basically pulled the Oli and Caesar together, and both are, you know, the point estimates are in favor of ECMO, and lo and behold, the estimates in favor of ECMO when you pull it all together, but with all the caveats of both trials. Likewise, there were network meta-analyses, which is a way of kind of weighting and, and combining different strategies and seeing if there's a benefit, and what it suggested across 25 RCTs of all different interventions for ARDS, a lot of patients, suggests that both prone positioning and ECMO have pretty favorable relative risks for reducing 28-day mortality in addition to what, you know, when combined with low, uh, low tidal volume, lung protective ventilation. So on balance, let's move my uh, window here. So it appears, I'm certainly biased, my priors are in strongly in favor of ECMO, um, but it appears that ECMO does have a benefit in patients with ARDS. Remember, Eolia was well before COVID. But how have COVID patients fared with ECMO with that context, right, if it was being used in that context? So now we go to the, the bottom half of my um, yet unused uh, timeline um, and just look at some of the data that started to appear. And it's really hard, by and large mortality data of SARS-CoV-2 during the kind of first couple of years of the pandemic. Early on, I mean, the China data, it was so premature. They obviously didn't know what they were dealing with. They tried ECMO probably late, probably in patients who were too sick. Um, terrible mortality. But, you know, that, based on that, there were a lot of guideline, early guidelines that were coming out saying don't use ECMO. ECMO doesn't work. Mortality is exceedingly high. But then everyone starts to take a pause, start to get more data as things start to spread to Italy and then to the rest of Europe, to the United States, and they started to collect more data. And I'm going to go through some of these trials here so you don't have to absorb all of this, but let's kind of work our way through some of this timeline. So Paris and, and um, your program director was mentioning that, that you had some of the, the Paris group uh, recently visit and talk about 
um, ECMO, and they're really, you know, obviously, you know, world experts in this, um, have enormous experience and also very high volume. So they early on had a lot of experience with COVID and using ECMO for COVID-19. And so their early couple month experience found that 83 patients they, they used ECMO in for severe COVID-associated ARDS. At this point, everything's COVID. Um, and what they found was that about a 31% 60-day mortality and a 36% 90-day mortality. So pretty good, you know, in preliminary data suggesting, you know, reasonable uh, survival. Um, they looked further as they got a little bit more data and, and they're in a network, right? So they've got a few really high volume centers um, and they have a lot of referral centers from around them and they're very well networked so that they all coordinate, not so much like the United States with, you know, much more siloed hospital systems. Um, so when they looked at all of their data a little bit later of 17 ICUs in the greater Paris area, basically the same time frame. Um, with a lot of mobile ECMO teams, it was a, it's what they do, right? I mean, it was a cool design. It helps, you know, optimize patients who are being referred and make sure that it's the right patients to create standardized criteria for who you're going to consider for ECMO. It's not just which hospital happens to get called, but they centralize the evaluation of these patients. And then they send out their mobile teams and try to bring them to high capacity ECMO centers, or maybe keep them at relatively low volume ECMO centers, depending on capacity and what they can handle. Um, so there were 302 patients on ECMO. You can see the 90-day mortality is not that 31, 36% I just mentioned before, um, but when you tease it out, um, you'll see the bottom left age makes a difference, not surprisingly. How long they've been intubated before ECMO, not surprisingly, is a spread. You know, the, the earlier on before maybe too much ventilator-induced lung injury had, had been acquired, mortality is better at, at shorter uh, pre-ECMO ventilator days. But upper left here, the caseload made a big difference, mostly because we were then talking about the Paris Sorbonne, you know, the main hub being that high case volume center that's most experienced, that case volume seemed to matter. And that it wasn't just about doing ECMO and COVID, but doing ECMO for COVID at places that are really experienced with doing it and have a lot of uh, volume over the years. So that, and that's really kind of like their main center versus everyone else. Um, not quite simultaneously because it takes time for all this data to be collected, and we'll talk about that kind of for future pandemics. But the extracorporeal life support organization, ELSO, which I'm sure you're all familiar with, um, started collecting data on COVID-19. And at the point that they analyzed this initially, it was the, kind of the early first wave of over 1,000 patients, over 200 centers across 36 countries. So really a heterogeneous uh, population, although all ELSO centers, so maybe there's some consistency in how they manage um, ECMO patients for COVID, seeing as they probably often adhere to the same guidelines. Um, and here we have 90-day mortality, 37%. So again, you know, reasonable survival, um, much better than that, obviously, initial China data. Um, here we have a little bit more data on what kind of patients, uh, you know, what kind of demographics portend a better or worse prognosis. So age, you can see here, tracks quite nicely. Again, not a surprise, but we have to be careful in not being ageists about who we select for ECMO, but it's important, uh, seemingly an important prognostic factor. Immunocompromised states made it uh, riskier that, you know, in a greater likelihood they were not going to survive. Underlying chronic respiratory illnesses, not surprising. All of this kind of goes along with our non-COVID ARDS experiences. Whether they had a cardiac arrest before certainly played into how they were going to do. Um, kidney injury, initially needing VA, um, were all uh, you know, negative prognostic signs for mortality. Also, around the same time, you can see the same time frame, kind of the first half of 2020, there was a Chilean experience. And this is a, uh, an interesting one, kind of like Paris, a little different. This is nationwide as opposed to just kind of a, a network of ICUs and hospitals. 
but they coordinated across the country to provide more consistent evaluation and management of ECMO patients. So 94 ECMO patients were ultimately managed. Um, and what they found there was not bad, you know, similar kind of 30, 60, 90 day mortalities kind of in line with what we've been seeing, but notably long hospital and ICU length of stay, right? Which maybe we're not as used to seeing, this isn't exactly ECMO length of stay per se, but kind of reflective of that as more data starts to come out. And I'm sure you guys have experienced patients with COVID-19 don't seem to get through their ECMO runs as quickly as say flu patients do, uh, or other you know, bacterial pneumonias, let's say, where it's an, you know, a known etiology that's, that's easily treatable. Um, a meta-analysis around the same time, 22 studies, it's gonna be heavily weighted towards some of the larger uh, experiences, including the also registered data, but almost 2,000 patients, almost all VV ECMO, and when you look to the pool hospital, Barbaro is the ELSA registry, so obviously that heavily weighs. Uh, what they found was a, a, a pool in hospital mortality of 37%. And so let's just, you know, take a let's look at the box score uh, for where we're at so far with all these early experiences that I've summed up. Paris, 60 and 90-day mortalities in the 30s. Chile, uh, Chile uh, similarly. ELSA registry, similar. And this meta-analysis, not surprisingly, kind of falling in line with the ELSA registry. And just to remind you, EOLI, a 60-day mortality in the, in the ECMO arm with non-COVID disease, 35%. So we're doing okay, right? We think ECMO works for COVID just as it does for non-COVID. Let's keep rolling with it. Not to mention, obviously, the resource constraints, the capacity issues, everything everyone's dealing with, overflowing with ICU patients, overflowing with potential ECMO patients. So all of that's a caveat that we have to address. Um, then, as you're probably also familiar, started to see there's some evolutions and outcomes over time as the pandemic evolves. So now let's start making some comparisons as we have some later two, 2020 data, 2021 data. One of them is out of Spain and, and the Iberian Peninsula, Spain, a little bit of Portugal. Um, what they found is quite a few ECMO patients, over 300. We can divide waves however you want, right? These aren't, there's not a clear dividing line in different geographical regions experience things at different timeframes. But how they divided it was 150 or so first wave in the first half of 2020 and looking at the second wave in the second half of 2020. More to, now, they, they do survival, but I like to keep things consistent. So look at mortality, first wave mortality, 41%, not too far off from where we were, 60% second wave mortality. Okay, so that's the first, you know, some of the first signs that something's maybe up here. Um, there's a, an ELSO, a Euro ELSO survey that goes out surveying a bunch of uh, Euro ELSO centers that they also looked at kind of first wave, second wave again, this time it's a little different divider in September. First wave mortality, 47%, second wave mortality, 56%. A lot of those patients were still being managed at the time that they're evaluating this. So that's kind of a rolling number. It's a little bit hard to, to be sure, but then that 56 could have gone up even further after that. Um, our Paris-Sorbonne experience, right? So these are, these are the experts and they had a ton of early experience and gained a lot of experience through their network. They look at 88 in the first wave. That's basically more or less the, the, the first experience I mentioned to you. Um, and then later in the second half is the second wave of 71. And here's first wave, 36%, as we mentioned. Second wave, 48%. And these are the guys who know, right? These are the, these are the experts who, who manage this day in, day out and had early high volume experience. And then we get the ELSA registry data, which is already the largest experience because it's, again, voluntary, you know, it's registry data. Take that for what it's worth in terms of the quality of the reporting, who's reporting it, who has the time to report it, who are the ELSO centers, are these reflective of non-ELSO practices as well? Maybe not. They look at their whole 2020 experience, 4,800 ECMO patients for COVID-19, 350 centers, 
41 countries. Now, they broke it up into very, I think, cleverly, what was the initial experience? Basically, A1 is what we saw before. A2 is if they started doing ECMO for COVID after May 1st, or, uh, not started doing, if they continue doing ECMO for COVID later in the second half. So A1, A2 is like waves, first wave, second wave of the same centers. The B group is those who only started doing ECMO for COVID-19 after May 1st. So newer, not necessarily new centers, because it could be centers that have been established but just didn't embark on ECMO for COVID, but also may reflect truly new centers that have popped up in the meantime that were not doing ECMO before May, before May 1st. So what we find here is A1 is that mortality that we described before. A2 is same centers, same, probably same practices. We'll talk about that. Um, mortality is going up over 50%. And B, the centers that had not been doing ECMO before May and now started doing ECMO for COVID-19 after May, the highest of the mortalities. So closer to the, you know, A2 and B are closer to each other, and both of them are well above what A1, the initial experience was. Um, they, in the meantime, there's an update on that meta-analysis because maybe that first meta-analysis is not really reflective of where we're at now later on in the pandemic. Um, so more studies, more patients all over the, 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 the world. Um, some were multiple ELSO regions, there were, you could see the different mortalities, Southwest Asia and Africa, very high mortality, Asia Pacific quite high, North America, um, you know, the best, but, you know, not, maybe not statistically so. Um, and what they found is their pooled mortality was 49% versus the earlier 37%. And look at the rise as you look at kind of divvying it up into half, you know, kind of semi-years, semi first half of 2020, second half of 2020. By the first half of 2021, we're going up to 62% mortality for ECMO and COVID-19. Um, there were several predictors, analyzed predictors of mortality, and among them age, when in the pandemic, as you just saw in terms of the trends, how many were receiving corticosteroids, this is something we need to get back to in terms of why we think these trends are occurring, shorter ECMO runs, which may just reflect, you know, I don't know, just death, um, so I'm not sure what to make of that, but certainly some, some factors that may be playing into this change over time. So that, that becomes the second question. Why is it changing? I think it's all there. It's true, but we don't necessarily have the answers as to why. Um, first, we were under the presumption that COVID ARDS and ECMO for COVID ARDS is the same. Is it actually different? Now, the mortality over time is one difference we've noticed. We've, we've seen this longer duration of support bear out in the ELSO registry data when they looked at A1, A2, and B. I definitely noticed that the A2 and B, the, the later periods of ECMO for COVID-19, the average ECMO run was going up to 20 days instead of the original um, period where it was at an average of 14 days. So we're seeing a change there. It's taking longer. There's this concern for hypercoagulability, increased thrombosis and risk. Maybe as a consequence, we're using more anticoagulation because experientially we're noticing more clot formation. And maybe that's adding to risks that patients, that, that they're observing in patients. They did see in the ELSO registry data that there seemed to be more cumulative incidence of on ECMO events like clotting and bleeding and complications, when they normalized it for the duration of the ECMO run, it actually normalized to similar to non-COVID ARDS um, being supportive ECMO, but it still doesn't mean you're not accumulating more problems because you're on longer. So it's, it's, it's a true fact. It's just I'm not sure that COVID is contributing itself to a higher rate, just that you're on for longer and exposed for longer. Um, the immunosuppression and risk of infection is something we certainly need to factor in and get back to because all of that evolved over the course of the pandemic 
and maybe that's playing in. And then there's been described maybe more RV failure. One, one experience I didn't highlight uh, in particular, but people may be familiar with, is this um, rush experience early on of um, ECMO for COVID. It was kind of like a bundle of interventions that they did. They used the Protect Duo, which is seen as something that basically bypasses the RV. It drains from the RA and pumps right into the pulmonary artery. So it does not, it, it can support RV failure without relying on the RV to pump VV blood forward. Um, higher anticoagulation and, and steroid usage uh, early on. They were trying to excavate people, mobilize people. They had a, a survival a range of like 80%, like well out of the range of what everyone else was experiencing. Um, and we don't know if it was attributable to any one of those interventions or kind of a package deal, but the RV has been, been something that people have been throwing around as maybe a factor that's worse in COVID uh, ARDS than it is in non-COVID. Um, so what were some- So Dr. Of Adams, I'm yeah. sorry, can I ask you a quick question? Sure. Um, and this, it's probably maybe a very obvious question, but were they able to show that their selection didn't get kind of looser as, you know, I feel like very early on, there was so much scarcity yep. of everything, PPE, ECMO, all the things. Yep. Um, did they get less selective as they, they moved on to the oncoming waves? Uh, you mean you're, you're the, 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 the first phase, second wave kind of changes? Yeah, I mean, yeah. did mortality, well, mortality so, go up because they're more likely to take right. a healthy 65-year-old than they were in the first wave? So, so I'm going to list a few a few hypotheses as why we think um, some of the, you know, the, the mortality rates have gone up. That, I think, could be one of them. It's hard to bear out. You know, I was worried that that was the case. Um, when they looked at the, the second ELSO registry study, they looked at basically, you know, pre-ECMO or, you know, baseline demographic risk of death. You know, what would be like, you know, kind of SAPS2 scores, things like that, you know, um, uh, what were things that are going to potentially, who's likely to die more going into it? And actually, the earlier phase or the earlier wave that had the lower mortality would have been predicted to have a higher mortality. So it doesn't, at least in a large registry data, it doesn't describe everything, and it may not have captured all of the, the baseline demographics that might have increased one's risk. Um, but it, I'm not sure that people have ne necessarily loosened their criteria. The, the rush experience that I thought you were first going to be referring to, they, they adhered to EOLIA criteria. I mean, so I can't blame that on, you know, doing it on people less sick who then just did better. Um, it's, it's a lot of these studies are still small when you're looking at pre and post, I'll call it pre and post, you know, first wave, second wave. Um, and it doesn't describe all of the potential risks, but it, it's possible. I mean, I think that's one possibility. So some of the things include, you know, among the, the list, as you're mentioning, there's a lot more, as, as you may have experienced, we certainly experienced, increased use of non-invasive and high flow and delaying intubation, thinking that if we intubate first, if you remember early on, they're like six liters nasal cannula, and now, up, oh, they're failing. Some people, non-rebreather, they're failing, intubate. We're afraid of spreading the disease. We're afraid we don't have PPE. We don't want to expose healthcare workers. We're not going to use high flow. We don't know if non-invasive works. Let's just intubate early. And then we said, huh, this is a pretty decent mortality in the ICU. Maybe we should manage them more conventionally like we normally do and see if we could stave off and we're getting some other therapies coming in, treatment options for COVID. Let's hold off. But what that, what that may have exposed people to is more patient self-inflicted lung injury. Maybe we're making them work harder for longer. And by the time we do, and they do fail and we intubate them, as we know for non-invasive for pneumonia, they end up doing worse. So that's one possibility. And there were a couple of studies. The French group noticed definitely a higher rate of non-invasive ventilation use in the second wave. Um, 
maybe that we have more treatment refractory disease. Steroids become in vogue with, with, um, re with the recovery trial. Now, early on, it was very haphazard. Later on, it's much more consistent use of steroids so that when you do get a patient who now fails all upfront therapies, is intubated and needs and meets criteria for ECMO, needs is a loaded question, loaded word, but meets criteria for ECMO based on at least the OLEA criteria, now maybe you're picking for patients who have more treatment refractory disease and just aren't going to do as well um, versus those that were unselected early on or did not get optimal therapy, optimal or, you know, um, treatment-specific therapy early on in the first wave. But I mentioned, I touched upon this in the last slide, but immunosuppression, steroids, and other things like tocilizumab was that increase in rates of secondary infections. And, it, and there are studies coming out that does look like there were more VAPs, there were more superimposed infections. So maybe that just portended, you know, another hit on patients who are already receiving ECMO for COVID that just led them to do worse later on. Um, one thing that's, that's not clear, one of my fellows is actually um, working on this with some of the ELSA registry data with some suppositions in there, but trying to get as, as clean a database as we can on this because we don't have individual patient by patient variants, but studying it based on where the, a given variant was the vast majority at a given time um, where the, when ECMO was being used, so kind of assuming that all the patients had that variant. There may have been changes to the virulence of variants and, and their disease courses over time as, as the um, pandemic evolved, and maybe that portends worse prognosis. So maybe we'll have a little bit more data on that as this project gets underway. Um, and also, you know, an increased use of ECMO in, as I mentioned, I kind of like the B group in, in the ELSA registry, in these either new centers or low volume centers, or, oh, ECMO works early on. We say ECMO works for COVID ARDS. Now we can do it too let's start doing it because the mortality is favorable. We should do it as well, but maybe if they're not as experienced and they don't, and you saw that with the Paris uh, group, you know, network and the spread there between high volume and low volume centers, maybe that led to worse outcomes, but you still notice that even the, the quote unquote experienced A1 centers still had worse mortality than A2. So it doesn't explain everything, but B being worse than A2, maybe that's part of the, um, part of the equation. And as was just brought up, maybe that did lead to a little bit more liberal usage. Oh, I can do it in a 70-year-old because they see, you know, everyone seems to generally do okay. Um, one, one other study I didn't bring up, but if anyone's seen it, the Germany put out, or some, you know, uh, researchers in Germany put out the, a, a very large experience, an unselected population, because you could pretty much do X on anyone you want in Germany. And they had some of the highest mortalities, 68%, um, 73% across the whole 2020 into early 2021 um, with tracking with high ages, but you look at some of the ages they were doing it in. I mean, there was not a trivial number of patients greater than 69 years old who were getting ECMO for COVID. So you can imagine what more liberal usage is going to do to your mortality when you, if you remember that age trend with the initial ELSA registry data. Um, so then that leads us to the question, you know, the mortality is going up, but what's the comparator? Like, how do we know if ECMO is actually effective? Because maybe the mortality for ECMO for COVID is going up, but maybe at the same time, mortality for COVID without ECMO is going up and we're actually still doing okay. Or maybe we're hurting people or their mortality is no different with ECMO or no ECMO and we shouldn't be doing it because it's not adding any benefits to, to survival. Um, I mean, certainly what everyone would clamor for if we, if we could is a randomized controlled trial to know if it's really better than optimal standard of care. I'm telling you right now, it's, it's like impossible to happen. So there's a, certainly based on Eolia and those who do ECMO, you're not getting another randomized controlled trial of ECMO for severe ARDS. I mean, the data is strong enough for those who believe in it to keep doing it. And for those who are skeptical, they're just going to remain skeptical. So, but for 
to now invoke that this is a different disease that needs a new randomized control trial, there's certainly going to be a lack of clinical equipoise. And forget the fact that it took six years to enroll, six and a half years to enroll for Eolia. Um, think of the infrastructure needed to start a randomized control trial in the middle of a pandemic when there's not that necessarily in place and it took a long time to design priors. Um, it can be very difficult to conduct when you're in a pandemic and all of your resources are strained. And they're diverted to all these other places, right? Even just data collection becomes a very difficult thing to do when the places that want to report that need to and have the data to report are also the ones being completely inundated with patients that they're trying to care for clinically. Um, so what are some other options to maybe try and tease out the effectiveness of ECMO versus optimal conventional management, if we can even compare to optimal? So there's matched pairs analyses, those types of analyses, as I mentioned in H1N1. Um, and they did look at this out of the UK. You know, is there, um, can we compare those that got ECMO to those that did not? Um, and that's ECMO at specialist ECMO centers and how does that impact in hospital survival? So they looked at um, referral hospitals in the UK who referred for ECMO and there's a couple, there's five UK specialist ECMO centers, but in this case, they looked at two of them in Guy's and St. Thomas's and Royal Brompton. They looked over the course of 2020 to early 2021. Um, and uh, basically, they included 1,300 patients in the analysis, 200, almost 250 of which uh, were, were transferred to, with mobile ECMO to an ECMO specialist center, and they compared them to those that stayed behind who did not get ECMO. Um, they did matching techniques because that alone doesn't tell you anything, right? If they were good enough to get ECMO by criteria and those that stayed behind, there must have been a reason that they weren't necessarily good enough or they were overwhelmed and couldn't handle it. But you have to tease that out. So they did match pairs analysis to see, and you look at odds ratios for in-hospital mortality, they did a few different um, types of pairs analyses. Um, and basically what they came up with was there, there was a significant reduction in mortality for those that got ECMO, 25%, 26% compared to those that did not. Um, sensitivity analyses, looking at other ways and subgroups, again, the odds ratio was strongly in favor of ECMO. Um, but you've got, and, and so you can say that referral to an ECMO specialist center, it's kind of like Caesar, right? Referral to an ECMO specialist center for COVID-19 to get ECMO, your survival may be, will be better, but your overall care may be better, right? So there's enormous residual confounding. Is it ECMO? It's, it's, it's a little like Caesar all over again, which is kind of ironic because it's the UK. Um, so is it the ECMO or is it the fact that, you know, the other care that's going on at these couple of centers is also better um, in improving survival? And also, if you're interested in things beyond hospital mortality, that wasn't going to get at the, the heart of it. Um, are there ways to maybe emulate a randomized control trial if we can't actually perform a randomized control trial? And so this was one relatively early in the COVID experience. Um, it was 190 COVID patients who got ECMO across 35 hospitals. And what they tried to do is emulate kind of day after day, looking at the patients and randomizing them, quote unquote, um, whether they got based on getting ECMO having met EOLA criteria or not, um, because they could have met criteria and not gotten ECMO, um, all within seven days. And they used a PDF cutoff of 100, even though by EOLA we would use less than 80. Um, and they found a significant survival benefit, very similar to EOLA outcomes, um, based on whether they got ECMO or not. My major issue with this study, as, as, as nice as it was, is that this is all done at centers that also performed ECMO. So it's like doing one at your own center that does ECMO and comparing them to non-ECMO patients was a reason they didn't get ECMO, even at your own center. So why not? Could they, is it simply a capacity issue or are there other factors that weren't captured in emulating this RCT as to why these patients weren't suitable for ECMO and are those major factors in mortality? 
And so I think that one, that, that leaves some, some things to be desired. Um, <clears throat> but the, the French group, again, going back to Paris, they did a, an emulated target trial similarly of mechanical ventilation alone versus ECMO within seven days, a couple of different uh, gas exchange criteria. They looked at 1,200 patients, 164 got ECMO. They did not see overall a difference in 90-day survival between ECMO or not. But when you break it down and you look at the, the, what these lines mean here, at high volume centers versus low volume, there was a big spread. In fact, ECMO at low volume centers seemed to be harmful, whereas ECMO in high volume centers was the most protective. And it also appeared that there was in subsequent analyses that if they got ECMO really early, within four days of mechanical ventilation and had even lower PDF ratios, they seemed to benefit most from an ECMO strategy. Now, the one that, that I want to, I mean, I encourage all of you to take a look at this study. Um, this is a slightly different statistical analysis that um, they got published in BMJ, and it was actually shopped around for a while because I think a lot of other journals didn't really understand what they were doing, and BMJ was promoting this kind of analysis. It's very sophisticated. It's very interesting. I certainly missed it when I first kind of read through it as far as what they exactly were doing. Basically, they're trying to do a comparative effectiveness. It's emulating a randomized controlled trial, but it's this design where you actually, it's all comers, okay? It's not ECMO versus those who didn't get ECMO, but it's analyzing a strategy where one would get ECMO if they met certain criteria, and they, the way they censor them, you're basically then analyzing each patient kind of as their own control, um, that they were going down the road where they would get ECMO if they met certain criteria, or they would not get ECMO if they never met those criteria. So um, it's, it encompassed, it's the, um, it's the COVID cr uh, critical care consortium is the source of the data. So this was 30 countries, tons of patients across the, the world. Um, and it was analyzing a strategy of ECMO if your PDF was less than 80 compared with conventional mechanical ventilation without ECMO, um, not just looking at those who got ECMO with PDF less than 80. That's where I think you can make a mistake there. And they looked at the primary outcome of 60 day mortality. And so that's why these mortalities are so low because it's not about ECMO alone, but basically if you employ this strategy of kind of triggering ECMO for a PDF less than 80, it reduced the mortality by 7%, 26 versus 33 in this entire population that was analyzed. Um, and so with a relative risk of 0.78. So this might be honestly some of the most robust data to suggest that such a strategy if employed um, has a benefit for ECMO um, based on these kinds of cutoffs, if you use them clinically. Um, they looked at subgroups and looked at if there was a further benefit, if you isolated a certain subgroups, it certainly looked like younger age had a stronger benefit, some comorbidities, regardless of the comorbidity, it seemed that ECMO was better. Um, and then if you look at kind of thresholds also, of which, you know, at what point might you cut off the strategy, less than 10 days seemed to be the most effective. You could see this curve kind of like less than seven days is even stronger benefit. Um, they looked at, the, I mentioned the primary outcome of PDF less than 80. That's where it was most effective with that risk difference and risk ratio. But there was still a benefit if you used the cutoff of a PDF less than 120, but probably harm if you use the cutoff greater than 120 and that ECMO shouldn't be employed, should not be employed in those, with that kind of threshold. And likewise, if you look at driving pressure, which is a hot topic in ARDS and, and ECMO thresholds and management and, and strategies once you're on ECMO, it appeared that ECMO was most effective when analyzing patients using a cutoff of the driving pressure greater than 15, which does seem to be one of those numbers that bears out in a lot of these observational studies on driving pressure, that that's where you make it the greatest bang for your buck with ECMO, an ECMO strategy versus not. So if ECMO is effective, probably, um, 
you know, there's still a lot of, uh, you know, issues and challenges in implementing ECMO during a pandemic. You're balancing supply, you're balancing demand, um, and there's a lot of competing interests going on simultaneously for ECMO centers and non-ECMO centers alike. So this is a, a figure that we put out there kind of earlier in the pandemic. Like, what is, what is ECMO usage going to look like in the course of a pandemic? Well, you know, initially, uh, there's a lot of patients. Everyone's got COVID ARDS. Lots of patients meet criteria. ECMO volume shoots way up, right? Everyone's excited about the prospect of, of saving people with ECMO. But then you get into the surge range where you're overwhelmed, right? There's more beds. There's more patients than beds. Taking care of one ECMO patient might be the equivalent to being able to have the staffing and resources to manage three other patients. So how do you balance those demands? And so maybe with too much of a surge, your ECMO excitement goes down because you really have to balance all the other strains on your, your system. And then as, dec as patient volume goes down, well, maybe that gives you more leeway to do ECMO, or there's just less patients who need ECMO. Um, and so that goes down. And one thing we're observing, and I'd be curious at the end of this if, if you guys are observing any of the same pattern, we're seeing a, now that the uh, you know, pandemic's, I don't want to jinx it, but you know, the, the volume's down, let's say receding, um, we're not getting a lot of ECMO calls for non-COVID stuff. And I don't know if that's a consequence that maybe over all of this, out of necessity and also appropriateness, centers are, are learning to prone better uh, and more, and there's just less need for ECMO because proning works. Maybe there's just more small ECMO centers popping up. People are doing ECMO because there was a demand for it during the pandemic and they're not calling for you know, referral to major ECMO centers. But there's definitely seems to be, and others have observed this too, kind of asking around that there's, there's a little bit more of a lull in, in ECMO volume. And so maybe that's part of this green line. Maybe as, as people get better at managing ARDS and aren't calling for rescue ECMO, um, that there's just less of a need for ECMO in general. Um, so how do we now, knowing everything we know, um, and we spend just a little bit of time towards the end of this, um, how do we prepare for what I hope is not later phases of this current pandemic, but maybe the next pandemic? And to be honest, I think we just have to assume there will be another at some point. And what have we learned so far? So this comes from that review that was mentioned at the beginning in the introduction. Um, so feel free to take a look. You know, uh, we described some of this stuff in greater detail. But certainly, as, as something first starts to emerge, what Paris does so well, what Chile learned to do pretty quickly, what I think the U.S. lags in terms of too many just kind of isolated hospital systems and other competing interests uh, in terms of coordination, but coordinating resources across regions, preparing for the possibility that you're going to need to share resources, transfer patients around to balance, um, and you know shunt them to, to high volume centers if they can handle it, um, you know uh, consolidate where possible, and also prepare from a resource standpoint, supply chain, especially if you're talking about ECMO, which is a relatively high resource, you know, resource intensive therapy. Um, understand the disease, right? The mechanism matters. If this is something that's gonna cause a ton of myocarditis and very little ARDS, well, you're gonna to have to prepare for a lot more potential VA ECMO and a lot less VV ECMO. This happened to be a predominantly respiratory disease with a little bit of cardiac involvement. Um, how is it transmitted? You know, what organs are affected? Is this gonna be, something like Ebola, where it's a hemorrhagic disease and ECMO is probably the last thing you want to use, um, or is it something that's, that's right up the alley of you know, what we're used to using ECMO for? Um, Define the scope of the problem and analyzing it and coordinating it is a huge barrier. And it's something that argues now more than ever for more automated data collecting um, and coordinating that data reporting into, into central databases and registries that people can draw from and start to analyze. And I think we really need to step up our game and being able to analyze it. As I mentioned, to, to collect it because 
the centers that are going to be the most, you know, have the most data report are also the centers that are dealing with the highest volume of patients and having to balance those, those interests. And if you don't have dedicated people to do that or an automated system, you're going to lag behind and people are not going to have the most updated information. Um, what, what I think, you know, is the most, probably the most interesting, and as I highlighted with the Erner study and a couple of the other strategies of analyzing this, understand the efficacy and the effectiveness, right? Efficacy, you know, kind of mechanistically what works and effectiveness in real world, how it's applied, really prompting early studies and trials. And I think some of these emulation trials with like the, the strategy of analysis, the methodology of the Erner study, and a couple other platform designs like Remap Captive, there's, there's a couple of guys, the, the Toronto group is working on a larger version of platform design trials for ARDS to be able to plug patients in, you know, in these, in, with multimodal and, and different strategies being analyzed all simultaneously. I think that's probably the wave of the future. Um, registry randomized trials where you can actually kind of trials embedded in, reg, in registry data. And one that I didn't mention, but it was a, an idea that was suggested, and maybe in the most extreme of circumstances, is if you have a lottery system, because there's resources are so strapped, you literally have to just flip of a coin, randomize people, you know, by pure lottery, you can wait it. You can say, this is a, a vulnerable population. I want to give them a higher probability of getting the treatment. But if you had a lottery system in place for ventilators, or in this case for ECMO, it's a natural randomization. And you can study those that got it and those that didn't simultaneously. And I think no matter what you study with ECMO, you want to and have to study a simultaneous population who's not receiving the treatment to know what's happening with the natural course of the disease anyway, because if mortality is going up in both, then maybe you're just not capturing the full picture by only looking at ECMO. Um, and so looking at those changes in time is clearly um, the COVID data has shown us is not static and not, you know, early experience does not necessarily reflect later um, outcomes. And then how to organize ECMO as a group, uh, both locally and across networks and across countries, um, developing those models and those relationships now, I think still based on the, this case volume outcome relationships, trying to concentrate ECMO within experienced centers, it's not to say that you can't start new centers. In fact, there was one nice study where in South Asia, predominantly Middle East, South Asia, they started a bunch of new programs during the pandemic to try and accommodate the, the demand that, was, that was, could not be met and they actually had pretty good outcomes. In fact, some of them were better than the more established centers. So it's not that you can't have a new program, but you have to support it appropriately and make sure the training and the resources are present. Um, and again, can't be at the expense of so many other patients that you know it's not it's not you know from a utilitarian standpoint worth it. Um, and simultaneously, based on the data that comes out, you know how do you developing guidance, be it you know ethical committees, um, hospital systems deciding when to flip that switch. When do you go away from ECMO because the mortality is high and it's just not worth it and it's draining our resources towards maximizing the, you know, the most patients you can care for and achieving the best overall outcomes um, in those most constrained times. Um, so with that, I'd like to end it. It does leave us a few minutes, which is great. Um, and I wanted to see, uh, do you guys have any, you know, certainly if you have any experiences you want to describe or if there's any questions that came up over the course of this, course of this talk, I'm happy to answer them.